All right, all right, here we go with another episode of The Techie and the Cowboy. My name is Alistair Hunt, a.k.a. The Techie. And this is T.W. Lawrence, a.k.a. The Cowboy. And we have our first guest of 2021. T.W., you want to introduce who our guest is? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. This is a, a close friend of mine. Actually, if you remember from last year when we had a, a guest, Hawk Hagaback, I met both these guys at the same time at the same men's Friday morning Bible study uh, at our church. And it was so neat. We sat around a table just randomly sitting there, which is how I seem to meet uh, most of my good friends. Anyway, this is Brian Tyson, uh, a man younger than me and actually younger than you, and uh, it, who is an attorney here in the Atlanta area who specializes in the, what I would call the law of politics, because there's a lot of, as you can imagine, you've seen from the elections, lawsuits coming and going and blah, blah, blah. So his firm and uh, his practice and uh, specifically deals with some of those issues. I'll let him tell you a little bit more about it. But uh, I, am, I am very excited to say that he is my prayer partner here in town. And we meet pretty much on a weekly basis on Friday morning still at this little biscuit place, which is really great. And um, we, we read books and we talk about it and we talk about scripture and uh, we just catch up on our lives. And uh, it's, it's just a, a good thing. He, uh, he puts up with my perspective since I'm that much older than he. And I enjoy hearing his point of view since he is so much younger than me. So everybody, I'd like for you uh, to meet Brian Tyson. It's funny because we meet weekly too. So Wendy was like, are you a little jealous? That's the other prayer partner that's coming on now. I was like, no, no, there's enough of TW to share it to go around. So we're good to go. So let's go ahead and kick that amazing intro and then we'll get into talking to Brian. Here we go. And now a few minutes with two of my friends who will soon be yours, the techie and the cowboy. Okay, we're back. So TW, go ahead and, and leave this interview with your friend here. I'm super excited to be able to hear about how politics and religion and how all that plays in together and how your faith has played a part in what it is that you do. So TW? Well, one of the things that uh, is, a, I guess you could say it was a hot topic, it is certainly a discussed topic today about how religion, particularly those people that are considered to be very conservative in their religious views fit in today's world period and in today's politics. So if we look at scripture and we look at the ethics each one of us carries as an individual and square it against somebody who really knows what the law says, it kind of helps us put into perspective how we should think and act as Christians as we relate to politics. So I asked Brian to come on our show and share his experience and his opinions about how that should be done. So I'll turn this over to Brian Tyson, let you explain uh, your background more specifically and take it from there, okay? Sounds great. Well, glad to be with you guys and glad to join you. Um, I, I, as as Wally said, I have a, a unique perspective, I think, as a Christian in the political sphere um, religion and politics, the two things you're not supposed to talk about in polite company, and I get to combine both of them with you this morning, so I'm glad about that. 
Um, what I got my start in the political world um, almost more than 20 years ago, working in our state legislature initially. And I worked for um, a, a guy who was in the Republican leader in the state house. We were the minority party at the time in Georgia, Lynn Westmoreland. Um, Lynn and I worked together in the state legislature for about four years, worked on redistricting, worked on a variety of policy things. He ran for Congress. I went to D.C. with him for a couple of years, and that was a great experience. Very glad to leave D.C. Uh, after two years and come back home to Atlanta. And then I got into the world of what you could say election law or political law. Uh, began practicing law with a firm in Atlanta that had a, a political law component, but at the time, it was really kind of an add-on to an existing civil litigation practice. It wasn't its own area of the law as much as it is now. Spent a while there, um, went and did a stint as the director of the Public Defender Council in the state of Georgia, working on uh, providing quality criminal defense lawyers for people who can't afford a lawyer in the state. Did that for about three and a half years and came back into private practice in 2018, just in time for the election law world to heat up. And since 2018, we've had dozens of cases in Georgia about how we do voting, about how we draw district maps, about how we do any variety of things. Um, for the 2018 election and the aftermath of that, and then on through now as we've seen the 2020 election. So political law has really come into its own as an area of practice. And uh, that's, that's what I do day in and day out on that front. So that's, that's kind of my background. And I don't know if you want me to go ahead and go into kind of what it's been like to be a Christian in government, but. Before you get into there. that, I got a question for you. What, mm -hmm. what do you think the big shift? I know you said there's been an explosion, right? And we've seen this all across everything in, in, in the world, you know, there seems to be more occurrences of, of certain things. What do you think the big shift was that made all of a sudden this become to the forefront? Is it just more people are aware of it or more people are willing to challenge it or? Yeah, I think it, when we had the 2000 presidential election. That kind of was the first time a lot of people realized that there was a court involvement in the election process. But things kind of seemed to not be as focused until 2018. And in Georgia in particular, I think what we saw is groups that were maybe unsuccessful politically or on the verge of being successful politically, really saw there was an opportunity in the courts to bring visibility to wanting to change particular voting practices, things like that. Um, in Georgia, that was led largely by the Democrats in the 2018 election, with Republicans kind of taking up the mantle in the 2020 election. And so that really is what has grown. So today, it, literally all that I do is either election-related litigation or campaign finance work. Awesome. Give us uh, a little bit of detail of how you felt as a very strong Christian in what can be seen as the heathen world of uh, <laughs> politics. Because one of the one of the things that you and I talk about all the time is how hypocrisy <laughs> is just not recognized by anybody on either side. It's just they can just say something and then do a 180 the next day and not even be bothered by the fact that they changed. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I, ha I have a friend who also is in the political sphere who was a, a public official for a while and then eventually ended up leaving. And he said the reason why he felt like he was an unsuccessful politician was because he had a sense of shame if he had to say something. And he realized that to be successful, a lot of times you having a sense of shame is a problem because you may have to change your views on the fly. So as a Christian, it is challenging because I think there's a constant, and this is true, I think, across a variety of, of areas of life, but there's a temptation to say, well, maybe if I just make a small compromise here, I can be more effective on something else because especially in the political world, you know, you have to say certain things to get elected 
Uh, once you get into the political world, sometimes you have to say or believe certain things to kind of get into the inner circle to try to get your policies advanced. And so there's a real temptation, especially for believers, to figure out what's compromising my principles and what is being effective and smart politically. And because I want to be able to advance good things, I want to be able to advance good policy, and especially for the for things that serve the kingdom in the political world. But along the way, I want to be politically effective about it. I've seen plenty of people over time who were very, very principled in their stand, but no one would ever listen to them because they were so principled in their stand, they just voted against everything, for example. They couldn't necessarily work with other folks there. And so trying to find that balance as a Christian has been really the biggest uh, challenge and the most dangerous temptation, really, because those can be small compromises over time that then lead to larger compromises. So when you finally have the chance to do something good, you've now so compromised yourself, you've really lost that opportunity. And you also have the whole favor and impression and, you know, scratch your back area of the political arena that becomes very sticky when it comes to sticking to what you believe versus what's going to be able to move the big agenda forward, right? Absolutely. And C.S. Lewis talks about this concept. He talks about first things and second things. And second, first order things are things that we, we must be about. Second order things are things that are good. But if we overvalue things that are of secondary importance and make them primary, we can often destroy the value of things that are, that are of first importance. And so he, his quote on that is, if you put first things first, you'll get second things thrown in. It's like seek first the kingdom and all these things are going to be added to you. But if you put second things first, things like achieving electoral success or achieving, you know, I've got to get this policy goal. If you make that first and, and first in priority, you're going to lose both first and second things in the process. Because ultimately what God is most concerned about is the kinds of people we are. Um, Jesus' kingdom doesn't advance through po the political sphere. There can be good things that come from that. And we want to be working towards good policy as Christians. But ultimately, the kingdom comes from believers living like Jesus in whatever context they may be in. What would you say that the uh, state of freedom of religion is today politically? It, it, that's a really difficult topic. And it, it's a really difficult topic for believers because as believers, we have a view that doesn't jive well with the modern culture. And that's this view of exclusivity, that we know what is true and that there are certain things that are not true. And that doesn't fit well into a postmodern world that says you have your truth and I have my truth. And so religious liberty is one of those things that is very clearly protected by the Constitution. And I think one good thing that we as believers can be aware of right now is that in the, our U.S. Supreme Court right now, there's a, a very solid majority to protect religious liberty. And so although we're gonna see kind of the balance of trying to figure out what does this look like in the public square, um, th there is a strong majority there. I think where we're going to see the flashpoint is there's going to be a push to say freedom of religion is about what you do in your church on Sunday morning. There was a move a few years ago to recategorize it as freedom to worship. You're free to worship and do whatever you want to do there, but be careful when you start bringing your religion into the public square. And so I think that's going to be where a lot of the challenges are for us as believers going forward. But I've been in plenty of parts of the world where Christians don't have the freedom to be believers, and the church is growing, and God is at work. And so I think that we as believers also have to guard against the temptation in our country to believe that if we have a, see a loss in religious liberty, we're going to see a loss in the church. I mean, there may be a real benefit for us as Christians 
to have the opportunity to be more like Jesus if we're not, if we don't have all the freedoms that we have right now, because that's what the, we see the church growing in a lot of parts of the world where those freedoms don't exist. I love that you brought that up because there's lots of, like you said, places where it's illegal and uh, even, you know, deadly to be a Christian if it is that you're found out. And like you said, these people are finding ways to be able to gather together under the highest of risks. <laughs> and, uh, and then there's just this, this urge, it's almost like this whole urge to be able to connect with your faith, which kind of leads me into my next question. What do you do to stay grounded? You know, what, what's, what are some of the practices that you put in place to kind of keep you centered and whenever it is that you're in an environment that may not be so all the time? Yeah, the, I, that's a really important point because I think as believers, and I think this is true for everybody in any context, but what I have found is very particular people in the political space who are very strong believers, and we meet with each other and encourage each other and try to help navigate together what does it mean to be a, a believer in this space. Because I think there's a strong temptation to kind of go to two, one of two extremes. Um, one extreme is to say, I'm going to view the political world as, as salvation, basically. This is how I'm going to fix everything that's wrong in the world, and if my party's not in power, everything's lost. Then there's a temptation, I think, probably more on younger generations to say, you know what, forget this whole government politics thing. This is ridiculous. It's all corrupt. Well, I don't want anything to do with this. And we kind of have to guard against both of those temptations. And it's very easy to fall into one or the other, especially a lot of people get very cynical about politics very fast for a reason. Um, but Chuck Colson, I think it was years ago, who said, you know, our salvation isn't going to arrive on Air Force One. Um, so while we recognize that all government leaders are appointed by God, that's what Romans 13 tells us. Um, we recognize that we have a responsibility to pray for those government leaders. Um, Paul tells us that in Second First Timothy. Um, those are individuals who are fallen people. Um, and the only way we're going to fix the brokenness in our world is when our resurrected and coming again Savior arrives and fixes what's wrong on, the, on things here. But we also have to be engaged as believers. We have to pray for our government leaders. Um, we have to serve our community, and part of that is serving in the political arena. So um, for me, I think the main thing is maintaining that attitude of consistent prayer towards government leaders at all levels of government, regardless of their political party. You know, pray for wisdom, pray for everything they need, pray for their protection, pray that they would make right decisions. Um, and then making sure I am in connection with other believers in the same space that I'm in, so that we can work together to sort through these really difficult questions, because there's usually not hard and fast answers to where this is. And I have, I have brothers and sisters in Christ who take a very hard line position, you know, vote against everything, you know, that's, and, that's, and I respect their conscience on that point. Um, others who, are, who maybe will go a little farther than I would, but trying to maintain the tension and recognize the tension there that we are citizens of heaven, we're citizens of the king coming kingdom, but we're also citizens of whatever country we may be living in at this point. And those, there's going to be a tension between those roles and responsibilities and, and living into that, I think, is an important thing to do to stay grounded. Great point awesome. for people that are just not in law, but I mean, we have listeners that are police officers and places where it is that they're put in situations where it is that their, their faith may be tested on a regular basis. That was a great point. Love it. One of the chapters that uh, you and I read in the current uh, text that we're looking at uh, was uh, tell the truth or at least don't lie. How can you do that and be even a little bit effective in politics? Yeah, this, this is a, it's a hard place to navigate because very quickly you want to start saying, well, I'll, I'll make a little compromise here on what's actually true. 
And what ultimately I've, I've kind of arrived at at the moment is kind of strategic silence where needed, that I don't have to offer my opinion on every topic all the time. And so in navigating that, trying to recognize where, where can I be affected and make a difference and be helpful, I think it's been the main thing. And sometimes that means telling people, sometimes very powerful people, things they don't want to hear. I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges that there's a very strong temptation in the political world to, you know, get the people around you who tell you what you want to hear. And that's true, again, of any organization, you see that kind of tendency, but it's especially strong in politics. And you have someone who exercises a lot of power, um, being willing to tell the truth, knowing that that might cost you something in the process, but also being strategic. I, I don't need to tell everybody everything I think about them all the time. So that's, that's how I try to navigate that that divide. Right. And one of the other uh, topics that you know have discussed for a long time is the tendency of people to struggle with, particularly younger people, a lot younger than I, uh, to take individual responsibility for their actions, which se seems to be missing in politics is a general stereotype. <laughs> Yes, that, that's a that's very important. And, and again, shifting with the political winds is something you see a lot of people doing as well. And so being a believer, we have a set of unchanging truths that are given to us in Scripture that we've got to stay grounded on and recognize that those matter at every level. Um, we have things like religious liberty, things like the value of human life, and that's everybody from the unborn to those who are in prison and recognizing how does how does our faith speak into those places? and trying to contextualize the gospel, you know, to say, what is it, what would it look like if Jesus was in the position I was in, living in the community I'm living in, having the job I have, um, what would he do in this situation? That's ultimately kind of where we're, what we're called to do and work through, no matter what that context might be. What, one thing that might be interesting for our listeners is if you could tell us a little bit more about your experience in the public defender arena, since all of your clients had at that point at least been arrested and needed a lawyer. So you were dealing with people that on the surface looked guilty or were guilty or were guilty for the nth time. And how did that experience square against uh, your practice uh, as a Christian? So what I found there is, is a world I did not expect to find. And what I found was actually a lot of believers there to try to help people who were in a very difficult and vulnerable situation. The first thing I learned about the criminal justice system through that process is that every criminal action is a tragedy for everyone involved. It's a tragedy for the victim, for the victim's family. It's a tragedy for the person who committed the crime and for their family. And watching the human impact makes you realize how far, how, how serious it is that we, we get to justice, but also how much the effects have reverberations throughout our society. And what I found was a lot of believers who were in that space because they wanted to help people who were in a very difficult spot. Um, a lot of a lot of criminal activity is not, you know, the 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 premeditated kind of things that we think of. A lot of it's in the heat of the moment. It's driven by drugs or alcohol. And there's a lot of issues that go into that. And so, in a lot of ways, a lot of people, and I, we've seen in Georgia, particularly with our accountability courts, um, a lot of people don't need to be in prison. They actually need some help of some other kind that they can't get. Um, the other thing that I saw in that was recognizing that as that Jesus stands as my defense lawyer, um, when there's a, if you look at the picture that happens in scripture, Moses is the prosecutor. The law says he's guilty. He's guilty. Jesus says, no, I'm going to take his place and serve him. 
And so ultimately what, what this all gets back to is the value of each individual, that every person is made in the image of God and has value, even someone who's done something horrible and horrifying. And yes, there need to be consequences for that for us, us as a society. But we also have to recognize that this is a person who has value as a human being, even if they've done something terrible, um, who has under our constitution needs to have their rights protected. Um, I, I used to joke with some of my public defender friends who thought that, you know, everybody's a victim of their circumstances. Nobody actually commits a crime. And no, I, if somebody breaks into my house, I want to pick up the phone and call 911 and I want that person arrested. I also want that person's rights to be protected and I want them to go to jail for a long time. That's that I can agree and want all of those things at the same time, because ultimately we have to recognize the power of the government versus the individual. And a public defender, as I learned, is that person who stands in the gap between the power of the government and the individual's rights to ensure that at the end of the day, justice is done and we can have confidence that the right result was reached under the law. Glad you asked that question, TW, because a lot of times we go with our TV version of public defenders, which is either the person defending somebody who's really innocent, but they, you can't prove that they're innocent, or the person who it is that knows that their client is guilty and they got to defend them anyways, and then they're ethically torn. <laughs> so that's how you, you only have like a black and white view of what a public defender does. So I love that, that definition. <laughs> yeah, and particularly in Georgia, you have really, really excellent lawyers. And I think it's also a perception that public defenders are bad lawyers. That's usually, you know, I want a real lawyer, not a public defender. Um, and what we've seen is, especially in Georgia, we've had widespread support for our public defenders, both budgetarily, training-wise, and we have a really good group of people um, serving people who are in a very vulnerable place in our state. That's awesome. So what's, uh, what's the future in politics look like for you? The future in politics for me looks like continuing to serve behind the scenes, um, helping where I can, trying to get good policy advanced, and primarily for me right now, making sure we have good laws surrounding the administration of elections. I think we've seen in 2020, there's a lot of doubt that, it's, that has come around elections, um, and that's both from, on the left, the cries of voter suppression, on the right, the cries of voter fraud, and those, both of those narratives undermine ultimately confidence in election outcomes. And so it's very important, I think, for us as a, as a society and kind of looking at where we are to make sure we have good rules around elections, to make sure that we make it, as they say, easy to vote and hard to cheat. And then we allow people to have confidence in what happens in the election world. So that's going to be my, my focus, obviously, for the next few years. And I'm sure there'll be plenty more lawsuits to come to get towards that end. My last question is, do you ever see yourself going like the judge route, the Supreme Court justice route of, of things going at that side of politics? Or you think you're going to stay, like you said, behind the scenes? Uh, I, that's one of those things I really don't know. I mean, I'd love to have the opportunity to serve in that kind of role. I, I love the we have some great judges in Georgia. And interestingly enough, I feel like in a lot of ways, for a believer, Serving as a judge is really a, a, an effective way to kind of not as, be as partisan as everything else is. Um, I can't ever imagine myself running in a part for a partisan office, but um, I've, I've just seen too much of how that process actually works. But um, there, we need good people doing that. And so I want to try to help and support those folks as best I can, which is kind of what my practice is, helping support candidates, helping support the, the election process. Right. And my, my final question will be, you have a um, family four kids, uh, a wife who has her own business on the side and is an accomplished uh, musician. How, how does your Christianity affect how you raise your kids? Ooh, <laughs> we could do a whole other podcast on that one. Um, for me, ultimately, my, where that comes for me is it's my responsibility to lead my children to Jesus and to show them who God is by how I treat them, um, to show them 
how um, their dad needs Jesus as much as they do, that I'm not perfect either, and helping them understand that um, I need Jesus' forgiveness and wisdom each day. So ultimately, um, for me, I want more than anything for my children to be not uh, only my, not, not just my children, but also my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that's the most important calling and mission that I have. And imaging that out as best I can through structure, through discipline, you know, through um, asking for forgiveness when I've done things wrong, um, trying to help model for them what it means to uh, be loved by Jesus and to who God the Father is and how much he loves us. Okay. Well, well, thanks for that. And thank you for volunteering to come on our podcast. To, uh, we think that uh, this is going to be an important message for all of our listeners. Well, thank you. I enjoy being with y'all. With that being said, oh, so we have a tradition that we do on the Techie and the Cowboy. Each one of our guests, you know, I'm the Techie, he's the Cowboy. We got to give him a name, a nickname. So we got to pick your nickname. What do you think your oh, nickname is? Oh, no, no, be? no. That's easy. He's the mouthpiece. The- <laughs> CW already gave me a nickname. <laughs> Do you like that or you want to pick something else? You like the mouthpiece? I would go with like Map Man or something because I, I love redistricting maps and all that kind of stuff, you know? So. I, I agree with <laughs> but you. I'll, I'll take mouthpiece. <laughs> <laughs> so then you'll, you'll be part of our call off. So with that being said, my name is Alistair Hunt, a.k.a. The Techie. And this is T.W. Lawrence, a.k.a. The Cowboy. And this is Brian Tyson, a.k.a. The Mouthpiece, apparently. (laughs) And we appreciate you guys listening. Make sure it is that you subscribe. Make sure you go to our IG page and our Facebook page and comment. We always love to get your feedback. And with that being said, let's kick that outro. That's it for this episode. Join us again next time for The Techie and the Cowboy. Hit us up on our website, thetechieandthecowboy.com. Let us know what y'all think.